0: Welcome to the Two Cent Dad Podcast, where we interview dads to discuss their journeys of intentional fatherhood while doing work they care about and living a life of purpose. I'm your host, Mike Sudik. Today, I have serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and author, Jason Calacanis. Now, the reason I wanted to have Jason on the show is because he's a pretty prominent figure in Silicon Valley and wanted to get his take on what the future holds for jobs, parenting, education, that sort of a thing, to hear some insights directly from Silicon Valley. And so he recently wrote a book called Angel, which is all about angel investing and seeing future trends. So this was a good interview. It went a little bit long. It kind of meandered, but it was very interesting to hear um, Jason's perspective and I think really insightful to what things we can do to help our kids in our role as fathers. So listen up. Today on the show, I have Jason Calcanis, who I'm pretty excited to have on. Um, he is, I mean, there's a whole laundry list of things to say about Jason, but he is a serial entrepreneur, I think, first and foremost, and also author, angel investor, of which he wrote about in his latest book, Angel, I think How to Turn 100,000 into 100 Million or something like that is the title, the subtitle of the book. But um, very prolific guy in, in Silicon Valley, and, and the reason I wanted to have you on, Jason, is that... As an angel investor, you're always looking to the future and what the future holds. And my podcast is all about fatherhood, especially with people that are founders and doing amazing things. And so um, just wanted to say thank you so much for being on the show and taking the time today.
1: Well, anybody who is listening who is a father understands that this is the most important job title we have, right? And it's our biggest investment. So I think there's a lot of analogies and I'm looking forward to our discussion about the Greatest investment we can make, which is our kids.
0: Yeah. So tell me about the book. Let's maybe let's start there because, um, you know, you've had quite a bit of success already with the book. I know. And it. what's interesting to me about it is it's a culmination of a whole career's worth of angel investing. I mean, you've invested in Uber, Tesla, a bunch of other big name, now big name, you know, companies. Um, so tell me a little bit about the writing process of that book and, and the contents a little bit for the audience.
1: Yeah. So the book was essentially my way of um, sharing how I went from you know uh, regs to riches essentially or in this case from riches to you know mega riches <laughs> I uh, I had been an entrepreneur and I was a good entrepreneur um, I had sold a blogging company and made a bunch of money uh, when blogging was just starting and before that I had a uh, publication, a physical print publication called Silicon Valley Reporter, and had the opportunity to sell that one for 20 million, and I blew it and didn't sell it. And then the market <laughs> crashed. So I've got a lot of wounds. I've made a lot of mistakes. And one of the things I've learned at the age of 46 is that people tend to not remember the mistakes, and they tend to um, rally around your victories. It's a nice, it's a nice aspect to human nature, I think. In a pretty nasty, crazy environment that we live in right now, a pretty toxic environment in the world, um, largely due to, I think, without getting into politics, you know, the current political climate, I think, has led things to be very nasty in dialogue. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons why podcasts, like we both do, are so um, sought after and having such a huge renaissance is because people would like to have meaningful discussions that are not. Screaming matches on Twitter, you know, and Mm. we we like to hear each other out. So I've gotten very lucky um, seven, eight, nine times at this point. And I've been approached to write a lot of books about things that I've done in my life because I've always been in technology and I've always been, you know, six or 12 or 18 months ahead of the curve. And to be truthful in the Internet industry, if you're six, 12 or 18 months of the curve, of something that's going to be big it might as well you might as well have 10 phds you know in it it literally knowing how the internet worked in 1993 and 94 and 95 or knowing how online services worked in the mid 80s it just puts you so far ahead of everybody else and if you know about cryptocurrency today or you know about augmented reality it's the same thing you're just six months ahead of the curve when it comes to angel investing there are certainly, uh, you know, a half dozen or a dozen people who have more experience than me. The interesting thing is, none of them have chosen to write a book. Mm-hmm. So I'm the first successful angel, really, to write a book about it. I mean, there's been one or two technical playbooks about how the legal documentation works and angel investing, but you know, they tend to be written by people who have no success or modest success, you know, at the um, at the fringes of angel investing, but never buy somebody who's in the heart of Silicon Valley who hits six unicorns. And right, right. That's, the, that's the track record that got me the ability to write the book with HarperCollins. And it's doing really well. And the book is meant to be uh, extremely candid. It, it is no guarantee you're going to win. There's a significant chance you're going to lose. But I thought it's worth writing so that people understand how great wealth is created in the world. And people don't understand that. It's a mystery. It was certainly a mystery to me. Um, When I was growing up, I had no idea how wealth was created. Uh, And I learned it over decades. And the book is my way of just paying it forward and sharing it. Uh, A book for anybody who is um, successful at their craft, a book is a true opportunity cost because you – if you were a director of movies to write a book for a year or six months or 18 months about making movies you just cost yourself making a movie or two Mm -hmm. and for me it cost me making another 50 angel investments but i felt like it was a good pause for me to go you know what if i write this book i think it'll it'll help a lot of people and that's really honestly why i did it
0: oh that's really cool i think and i think it is from what i've seen it you know there are a lot of people that are reading it, especially younger people that are that are newer to angel investing or that are newer just to tech in general. And I think that's pretty exciting to to kind of tell the story of, of your journey and then say, okay, here's kind of how, here's the, the nuggets of wisdom I can pass down. And obviously that's going to proliferate into, you know, the next generation, if you will. Um,
1: speaking of it's which- It's really designed for founders too. I mean, yeah. so that's the interesting, I would say eight or nine out of 10 people reading it are actually founders. Okay.
0: So speak to that a little bit. Then they're seeing, you know, they're the ones that are actually founding the companies, not investing in the companies. But those principles, you know, how, how do they carry that into their companies and seeing ahead of what, what's coming?
1: Well, it's super easy uh, for somebody who's a founder to identify who angel investors are today. You know, there's different databases out there. You have something like um, List. Or Crunchbase or Mattermark, the you know the, the investors finding them is not the problem anymore, but understanding what makes them tick, how they make decisions, and what they're going through. In other words, having empathy for them um, and understanding the other side of the table. Um, those are the things that most founders don't take into account. So, as a very small example, you know founders tend to paint. The rosiest picture possible. Sometimes they do that at the expense of the truth. Mm-hmm. Is a kind way of putting it. In other words, you know, out of a hundred investments I do due diligence on that I'm really seriously considering investing in, two or three percent don't make it through the due diligence process because specifically of lying. And uh, you know, I, I it, the number is probably higher. I probably just don't catch some people in lies. And so, if 5% of people, one out of 20, or maybe 10%, are lying about the state of their business, this is a very bad way to um, operate in the world because the cost of being caught in a lie is great. And so, I counsel people in the book by just showing deals that blew up because of just, you know, I, I could say fraudulent behavior, but in most cases, it's naivete and desperation to paint the best picture. If you're an angel investor, the opportunity is investing in companies that have yet to break out. In other words, investing in potential. You don't have the expectation that things are perfect, yet founders think, oh my God, if I have, you know, out of the 10 months of data I have, if three of the months are down and seven are up, something's wrong. I have to figure out a way to prop up those three months. It's like, no, you don't. It could be seasonality. It could be bad luck it could be a tweak in an algorithm in the app store or google's apps you know mm-hmm. it could be any number of reasons it could be one bad review is costing you a third of your users you got to fix that so it's a lot in there for people and it's um one of the great concerns i have um and one of the reasons i wrote the book is i'm very concerned about the future of Jobs and the future of wealth creation. When you and I were growing up, I get the sense we're both Gen Xers. You can correct me if I'm wrong. If you're a millennial, but I think you're a Gen Xer. Low, low end of the millennial, yeah. So in between there. In between, yeah, right? So yeah. On the um, well, if you, I'm going to put you in the, uh, <laughs> it doesn't. I'll put you right in both. It doesn't matter for either category. The fact right. is, we were both trained. Whether you're a uh, you know uh, an early millennial or a late. Uh, Gen X or we were all trained that wealth is created largely by getting a great job, being Mm -hmm. frugal and owning a home, paying down your home, continuing to be frugal and then maybe buying a second home and renting it out or having a, you know, two family residence where you rent something out and you maybe start collecting some rent. And maybe when you die, you have a house or two or maybe you hit the home run and you have five houses or three houses and some 401k and you die with a million or $5 million in the bank account. The fact is when our parents bought their homes, I, I discussed it with my family, and they paid 45000 for their brownstone in Brooklyn in Bay Ridge. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, that was 1977. I was seven years old when they moved there and we went to public schools. So there wasn't a cool school expense uh, up until high school. And there was some minor Catholic school expense for high school. Uh, and my mom was making probably twenty-five thousand dollars as a nurse, maybe thirty. And my dad was probably making twenty, twenty-five grand as a bartender. So their combined income was about one x the cost of the home. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, if they saved ten or tw- if they put ten percent of their income every year towards their home, they'd be done in ten years. They would own it outright. Uh, if they put five percent to us, they don't end 20 years. Now people with two white collar jobs, these are blue collar jobs, obviously. Two people with white collar jobs, two people with blue collar jobs might make 75k each today, 50 to 75k each. So they might be in the 100, 250k range, and even two blue collar people making 150 would make 300,000. If you bought that same brownstone, same brownstone is now worth 1.2 million, it would wind up being four times two white collar people's salary. And it would wind up being almost 10 times blue-collar people's combined household income. So it just gives you an idea of how that hack, that way to make money is gone. Mm-hmm. So how is money gonna be created? Well, I can tell you also that 30 million jobs in retail and driving are going to slowly um, Or violently evaporate. And and that's the question nobody can really answer candidly. I think it's going to be closer to rapidly than slowly. And you can see that in the fact that when people fought for a higher minimum wage, which does not seem like an unreasonable request. I mean, Mm -hmm. wages have not gone up. It sparked a flurry of startups that I saw here in Silicon Valley. Startups that would get rid of cashiers. As one mm-hmm. example, so cashiers fight for $15 an hour in uh, you know, which is a living wage uh, in a city, a barely living wage, in fact, in a lot of cities, and that then motivated those same companies to invest in kiosks. So if you go to McDonald's in San Francisco in a number of locations, the idea that you'll order from a register, from a a, a person, a cashier, is just going away. I think Panera Bread got rid of all of them, so there'll be no more cashiers. Just like I don't know the last time you went through a toll booth and actually said hi to a person and handed him five <laughs> bucks. But those jobs time. are gone too. <laughs> it's been a long time, but I specifically remember waving and talking to those people and being fascinated by them when I went over the Verizano Bridge. Yeah, um, and you know, fascinated by the line. Now they're literally not only are they. Using EasyPass, they're ripping out the booths because they know the booths will never exist. And even if you don't have an EasyPass, they just take a picture of your license plate and send you a bill. Mm-hmm. So all of this means we're going to live in a really horribly, um, a beautiful and horrible uh, future. The beautiful part about it is people wouldn't have to sit in a toll booth or make you a coffee and sit there for 12 hours or 10 hours making coffee or driving a truck. 12 hours a day until you're exhausted and sleeping in the back of a truck and being under massive pressure that leads to people having massive anxiety, heart attacks, and even uh, you know taking stimulants to stay awake. Mm-hmm. Um, all these crises that we see, they're going to go away because robots will do that horrible, arduous work. <laughs> the downside is, what are those people going to do every day? And yeah. where will they find meaning? You know, it's, you could, you can Feel bad for a person working at a toll booth. I think that's a little bit, uh, or you can feel bad for a bartender or a barista or whoever you want to feel bad for, because of how hard the work are. But I've done jobs like that, and I took pride in those jobs. And my parents did jobs like that, and I know they took pride in it. So, you know, we we have a we're at a crossroads, and our kids are going to live in a world that flips three times in their lifetime, and our lives are flipping once. In our lifetime, the introduction of the internet and maybe AI. So arguably twice, I think, in our lifetime, we're going to see the world flip. And the internet has changed everything, and AI and robotics are going to change everything. Our kids, they're going to go through a biology revolution and implants and all kinds of other interesting revolutions. And so how do you prepare your kids for that? Exactly. Yeah, how do you – Yeah. what do we do? yeah what do you think about it because the reason I'm curious about
0: that Jason is because the things that you're saying so I'm in I'm in actually in Michigan so I'm in the Midwest so we're a little bit behind obviously the trends that are going on in Silicon Valley but yet that is definitely on the horizon. so you as an angel investor insider in tech, I would say and in Silicon Valley probably at the at the very bleeding edge of all of those things and bleeding knowledge of all of those things. and so, it, I'm really interested in saying like, okay, what's the conversation about how do we prepare, to, uh, prepare an entire generation for a three times, four times, five times world flip that they're going to have because the traditional model of education or even things that they're experiencing are built for the previous, you know, um, that you, the model you were talking about with your parents even, you know, the buying the house and the, the just doing the, the blue collar job or just, you know, the jobs that exist today. But if I I, I guess what has to change to adapt to that new, you know, future that you're describing.
1: So, I believe the education system will not serve them well, Um, and although I think socialization and some basic skills that you learn at school—reading, writing, arithmetic, um, socializing—are all things that you know. you can't go wrong with knowing how to do math and knowing how to read. It's kind of a precursor to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think the school systems particularly served us well, Mm -hmm. our generation, Gen X, um, because I see a lot of 40-year-old, 50-year-old contemporaries of mine who didn't get into the technology business who are now going, where's my sales job coming from or what am I supposed to do now? And I think they're going to have a hard time And you even hear about ageism um, and people being aged out in Silicon Valley because they're a 50 year old programmer and they don't have the ability to work the hours, or, you know, in certain people's minds, they're not as efficient or they don't know the skills, whatever it is. Um, You know, I'm not saying I agree with any of that, but that is the complaint that you hear. So I have taken it upon myself to teach my daughters. Um, And I have a seven-year-old, and I have two identical twin 16-year-olds, and I'm no expert on parenting, (laughs) but I am an expert on entrepreneurship, and I am an expert on making your own way in the world. And with my seven-year-old, I take her to my incubator, and she sits in. I talk to her about angel investing, what I do. And I told her in the past year, she has the choice to go to college or she has the choice to open a business with her dad. And she can choose what she wants to spend that money on, and here are the pros to college, and here are the pros to starting your own business. And she can take the money and do whichever she wants. I mean this is at the age of seven I'm having this conversation with her. And she's very fascinated by business obviously. Um, And – if she wants to be an artist, that's fine too. She happens to have a dad who can afford to, you know, underwrite that. So <laughs> she's lucky. My dad couldn't. Un- I, you know, I didn't have that privilege. My dad didn't have the ability to underwrite. Um, you know, did you, have, did you have artist aspirations, Jason? <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting you say that. Um, I, it was never something presented to me as an option, mm. and so I, 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 sometimes I listen to Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits play, you know telegraph road or private investigations for Schultons of swing and i go wow, i would have loved to have been able to play the guitar like that <laughs> and in writing the book people have mentioned you know i don't know one out of three mentions in the amazon reviews which have been just humbling uh say that i have this incredible writing style and that people can't put the book down and it's a must read and they just love the writing style and i go Ah, oh, geez. Maybe I could have been a writer. That was never presented to me as a possibility. What was presented to me as a possibility was, cop, fireman. Maybe if you get your sh- together. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know if this is for You're kids. You're fine. We can bleep it out. <laughs> okay. Get your sugar together, uh, and, you, and you get your butt in gear. Maybe you could wind up being a lawyer or a, you know a stockbroker. And so I think the expectations were set really low for me, and I think that did you know. Put me in a position where I just went with what I knew, which happened to be computers. So I got lucky, mm-hmm. that that was the thing. Um, so we'll see whatever she wants to do. But um, she's—I've been giving her an allowance. So if she gets the newspaper from the driveway on Sundays when I get the New York Times in print, if she brings up packages or she does some other tasks around the house, there's a dollar available. Uh, and uh, she's stay, and then she's babysat some neighbors birds and they're super nice and give her like ten or twenty bucks a day for doing that, which is ridiculous. But uh I told her if she wants to open this ice cream store, she loves ice cream, we will get her an ice cream machine, which literally arrived yesterday when she hit three hundred dollars in savings and we bought the three hundred dollar savings ice cream. Now if she can sell uh fifty pints of ice cream to our family and friends and she's keeping a book with the costs so she'll know her cost of goods, she'll know what she can sell it for, and she's gonna, we've been doing the research phase, which has been wonderful, going to the top ice cream stores and trying the flavors and writing notes about which flavors people seem to be enjoying. So she's learning uh, market research. Mm -hmm. She's gonna learn cost of goods and unit economics. And she's gonna learn marketing when she starts selling this to people. And she's gonna learn customer support and success and feedback when they give her feedback on what flavors they like. And then I told her literally that we'll open a pop-up store um, or a uh, we'll go to a farmer's market and sell her ice cream and uh, then if that works out, maybe when she's 10 years old and my twins are 5, we'll open a little ice cream store in our little town in the peninsula and she can have her own ice cream store at the age of 10 and work there after school. Boom. So I have, I have my own plan. I don't think <laughs> anything she's learning in school would ever allow for that level of, you know, focus and it will give her a sick advantage over her contemporaries, and that, that's really what life's about. Is you know you got to have an edge, because you know it, I, you know people don't want to believe that the world's a zero sum game, and I can tell you, man, it, it is largely a zero sum game. So what do you do? You see, I think that's
0: interesting. You know what, what you're doing is trying to give your daughter real world knowledge and saying. This is the theory, you know, maybe you're getting in school, but here, this is how the world actually works. So you're you're giving her that edge and that, I guess, advanced knowledge that maybe she would pick up down the road. Is that? Do you see um, those trends in most of the the people in, in your that, that you're dealing with? You know, the entrepreneurs that are doing that with their kids. Um, you know, I try to do that with some of, with, with my children too. Um, but what are some of the trends, even like in the schools that you're seeing that maybe your daughter goes to? that are trying to prepare, you know, her for the next generation, whether that's, you know, you know, because they talk about, you know, information isn't, you you know, you won't need to be recall, you know, just the rote memorization and things like that. It's like, it's more of those things that you're describing, which is the business acumen, or even the ability to come up with new ideas and logic and reasoning. What do you see in trends in that way that are changing the, the actual schooling And is that happening in Silicon Valley? Is that, are people working on that? I mean, what do you see in those areas?
1: You know what? Um, I see a lot of, uh, I see a lot of people focused on exactly the wrong thing, which is status and Mm -hmm. competition. And they're literally in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area, um, obsessed with their kids getting into colleges. They're obsessed with them taking AP courses. They're accept, uh, obsessed with them hitting math achievement that is unhealthy. And I think they're obsessed with being in the best schools and having their kids alongside other, you know, highly affluent people. So, literally, where do the founders of this billion dollar or hundred billion dollar company's kids go? I need to go there. Mm. So, there's a lot of shallow trying to keep up with the Joneses. And I looked at a bunch of schools that were for gifted kids. M- my daughter happens to have a pretty high IQ in some areas, and then she's got learning challenges in some other. She, like, is off the charts on verbal, which makes sense. Her dad's a writer. And, a, <laughs> uh, and her mom went to an Ivy League school, so we talked to her, you know, in a certain way, and we explain what words are using our Amazon Alexa. That is a game-changer in terms of vocabulary. So I've really... I, com- I came up with a whole technique which we can get into if you're if you're interested about verbal ability um, and just making that a focus because I do think communication and verbal ability is something that will help kids get through this next challenging environment the ability to actually you know communicate <laughs> that right. would be one of those like great skills communication and leadership skills so you know I'm focusing on that but I mean I watch these kids and it's really heartbreaking here like there's a very high suicide rate amongst high school kids in Palo Alto, it's not talked about, but I think we can talk about it candidly mm-hmm. here because this is not a show for kids, but they actually don't like to talk about the Palo Alto suicide problem um, because of something called um, induced suicide, um, hmm. but or like a cluster of suicide. It, it turns out when you write about suicide, more people um, will consider it as an option and um Palo Alto high schools are so competitive uh that they lead the country in suicide death rates. Now just let that sink in for a second. Palo Alto is a place where, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple employees live. Mm-hmm. They are wildly successful and their parents are wildly successful and kids are jumping in front of trains to the point at which, from what I've read, they are putting guards at the train stations to make sure kids don't jump in front of the trains. This is amongst the most disturbing things I've ever heard. And when you look at it, it all is um, around a peer pressure to get into um, these incredible schools. Mm-hmm. So um, to, to lead – for for one of the most affluent places in the country, to lead in the suicide rate of children is should give pause to the parents in this community. I'm not in Palo Alto, I'm, but I'm in the surrounding area. And – is, um, we're literally talking about a place where homes go for two thousand dollars a square foot. The average home in Palo Alto might be four million, five million dollars, which would be in any other community the most expensive, you know, mansion and compound. You know, if you were outside of the Bay Area in New York City, and you know, even in Los Angeles, it would be a pretty ridiculous place. So people are really trying to figure this out, and you can look up Palo Alto suicide rates and. Um, Just I'm looking at a story right now. From 2003 to 2015, Palo Alto's youth suicide rate per 100,000 people was 14.1. And uh, those are much higher than the country rate of 5.4 deaths per 100,000. So they're literally triple. Uh, San Jose saw the most youth suicides during that period. 113 young San Jose residents died by suicide in the city or elsewhere. So, you know, 19 young Palo Alto residents died by suicide in the city. It's just unbelievable that um, this number of young people are killing themselves, and it literally is over competition in school according to what I've read. Um, and they're really trying to the, – the problem is so bad that they're trying to get the media to not cover it mm. um, because it's so difficult for people to grok or understand that they just don't want to inspire more of it. And I understand that. But again, I, I, I try not to talk about this issue too much on my podcast or other places, but I feel like this is a safe space or the, a proper place to talk yeah. about it. The show is about parenting. And so, you know, why is this? Yeah. It's uh, it's just incomprehensible, and it's the parents' fault um in my mind when this we have something this statistically significant it it it, it's the parent's fault and Mm -hmm. i'm not saying any parent is responsible for their own child's suicide i think collectively the parents are responsible though because they put an emphasis on if you don't get into stanford if you don't get into harvard you know not good enough and they're, they're all just on this road to nowhere and i what i always tell parents who are freaking out about where their kids go to school i remind them like i'm a kid from brooklyn who went to public school i went to severian high school for private i went to fordham i had a i had a three-year gpa i think uh i was a 71 three-year student at severian high school like literally a 71 (laughs) out of 100 and i said you know a lot of people who work for me went to ivy league schools Mm -hmm. and i have a large amount I have a significantly I have significantly more success than most of the people I meet from Harvard and I went to Fordham and I barely got through that. I did that at night. There is not this correlation between uh, the correlation between success in the New World order and this random world and going to an Ivy League school is just that's gonna break, I believe. Mm-hmm. And certainly happiness has already broken. And The people who are going to be happy in life are the ones who feel a sense of mastery, that they have control over their destiny, and that they don't need to be better at the SATs or have gone to a better school than the person next to them. They should judge themselves by the work they produce in the world, how aligned that work is with their own interest, and do they wake up every day – with a sense of joy that they get to participate in some something purposeful that matters to them and if that's playing guitar like Mark Knopfler or writing books like you know Stephen King or painting or doing math or working at NASA or Tesla, or Uber, or wherever you want to work, or opening an ice cream store, all of these things are valid. But we're living in a time where, because of things like Instagram and peer pressure, everybody thinks they need to live this Kardashian lifestyle. The Kardashians are not a happy family, or a family to aspire to be anything like. Mm -hmm. It's a disgusting, dysfunctional representation of a family. Um, And I don't know how much of it's real or made up, but you, know, you have a group of young kids who think I need to be like these vapid, you know, fame balls that are just flaming out in the world. And we're sending very weird messages to our children. The success is either being this MIT, you know, perfect SAT, Stanford track or being the Kardashians and having, you know, so many likes on Instagram This is not what life is about. And certainly for women um, and young girls, they're pushing them toward either this, you know, sexualized adulthood very early where they have to be posting their pictures of Coachella and Snapchat and their self worth comes from their outfit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And. Their lipstick and how whatever body modifications they're doing and not from the work they produce in the world or how deep their friendships are and how meaningful their pursuits are in life. And I'm going to raise my three daughters to be bosses, not bossy, uh, but to be bosses like Charles Sandberg says. I want my daughters to feel like they can accomplish anything, to know what it is that motivates them and what they would enjoy to do. And just make them super, super confident in their ability because the stuff in school is just – it's foundational and it's great. I I think people rely a little too much on the school and not enough on themselves. So I'm just making massive investments now in watching what they're interested in and then trying to – based on what they show interest in, which is a Reggio style of education, which my wife, who is brilliant, you know – T- taught me about you know she taught me about all the different educational things because she just reads all the books and then I draft off of her knowledge of it. but Reggio, mm-hmm. Amelia, if you look it up, it's kind of like a Montessori philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it basically says if you look at what the kid's interested in, they show an interest in Orcas. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's teach them math or science uh, or projects that are based upon orcas. And then make the whole theme of the year orcas, and then culminate the year on going and seeing an orca on a you know twenty dollar boat cruise out of San Diego. And if you can't afford to do that, maybe studying uh, orcas online by watching documentaries and you know just going all in on orcas because mm-hmm. now they've learned. Oh my God, the the pursuit of knowledge about something you're passionate about that could be so meaningful to them and they get this incredible reward of going deep on a subject right um, but you know the skill I try to explain to the founders who I work with right because I, I basically take over the parenting role right in some cases when you're the angel you get looked at as a parental figure somebody with a mentorship figure it's not a mentor is not exactly a parent but it's not it's pretty close uh, in, in many ways and you know i just i sat down at lunch yesterday with a group of 3 of my founders who were incredibly successful and i said okay where do you guys want to be in 5 years what does success look like? you know they have offers to buy their company and i said okay is success for you each to make 6 million dollars is it each of you to build this company for another 4 years and make 60 million dollars each or is success for you to work together for the next 10 years to make a company that is legendary and never goes away and that can be your legacy. And they're just sitting there like, Well, we had questions about the pricing of our product and you know, <laughs> should we do this business deal and should we hire this person? I'm like, You're gonna you're super qualified to make those decisions. Let's have a let's step back for a moment and look at the whole chessboard, right? Let's make a decision here. And and it can be a different decision for each of you. I, I painted three scenarios, six million, sixty million, owning the company indefinitely. Each of you should just honestly say which one you Think you're leaning towards or rank them you know and they rank them and they all rank them the same mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know yeah i think young people are just not even you know i'm talking about 20 somethings uh, or people in their 30s even who just don't have anybody sitting there saying what would success look like to you for me i figured out what success looks like for me a while ago and i'm living it and every day i wake up with a sense of joy that, and I pinch myself.
0: I get to do what I do, but because but it sounds like it. You know, the the definition of success is painted by the value system. At least right now, in the current setup in Palo Alto, you're talking about is you have all of these keeping up with the Joneses. Um, activities where it's like success is getting into the big school, success is getting the highest SAT score, success is landing a job, you know, at some startup or tech company post uh, graduation from the prestigious school, you know. So then that begets uh, attitude in the, in twenties and thirties to say, I don't know what the heck I'm supposed to do because this this value structure that I had is actually not accurate, and I never really learned how to ask myself the questions or have that self-guided approach of education that you described where it's saying, hey, I want to have someone that comes alongside me and and really helps me understand what it is that I'm interested in and then gives me a framework for self-guided education toward that, you know? So that's where it's interesting to hear you talk about the Palo Alto scenario because it's almost like, is there anyone that's doing that? It sounds like you guys are doing that a little bit. And I would imagine there's probably some others um, in your spheres that are doing this, you know, Montessori esque type education where you're saying, you know what, it's, it's more about teaching them to have intrinsic motivation and curiosity and how do we do that as opposed to just forcing them down this path of, credentials and high scores and prestigious schools and everything and and i'm curious like how did did your wife arrive at this or is there other people doing this is it, it doesn't sound like any startups are trying to tackle that or there's not any you know things on the horizon because one of the things too jason is that you see this trend of not only keeping up with the joneses but also a trend of lack of focus you know everyone's ADD there's no, there's no slowness to ask those questions. And that's why people aren't asking those questions. And so it's almost like if you can do that and you can slow down, that's a competitive advantage in and of itself. Right. You know, when you have a world of people that are chasing after these things or distracted by these things that becomes your competitive advantage, which is interesting to me. It's like, well, how do you build that? You know, that's what I'm asking for my kids. And that's what I want to help people with, you know,
1: yeah, it's, there's a lot in there. I mean, <laughs> uh, there. You, if you look at ADD and ADHD and Aspergers and the whole spectrum, you know, society has gone on. We study things, and um, you know, people's existence of constantly having inbound email, text, Snapchat, etc. Um, this is. Having an impact on people's brains and their psychology and their anxiety, as a society, the things that will kill us continue to go down. The idea of dying a violent death has gone down significantly, for many reasons. You can read about Steven Pinker or listen to Gavin De Becker or read Gavin De Becker's um, talks. He just did a great podcast with Sam Harris. You know, the idea of dying a violent death has gone down significantly in society. The idea of living in abject poverty or starving yourself you know, we're starving to death, famine, these things have gone down precipitously, um, you know, infant mortality. A lot of things in society are trending the right way, so much so that the things that are left that will kill us um, are going to be in many ways self-inflicted and highly avoidable, uh, suicide being one of them. um, Because after we get rid of drunk driving and the 30 or 40,000 people a year that die in the United States from accidents, you know, it's happening every day, Uh, 100 people dying from car accidents, Um, you know, when those things start to fade, uh, what's going to be left? In fact, if you look at death from airplanes in the modern, or I should say in the United States, uh, the... I don't want to say. Uh, I think the proper etiquette is to say if you compare the Western world mm. uh, to the developing world. I think third world is considered um, not as tactful. I don't think mm-hmm. it's insulting, but I think people say the developing world. In developing worlds where there aren't as many laws and oversight, you know, yeah, dying in an airplane, a commercial airplane, very possible. Um, in the United States like we have years go by where nobody dies in a commercial jet and then we have you know spiky moments where you know terrorists kill thousands of people with commercial jets and uh, we've gotten to the point where we're just looking at that one instance you, we we put lock pit we put doors that can't be broken down to protect from terrorists so we kind of try to solve that problem Hmm. And then we have a suicidal pilot in Germany who runs a plane into a mountain because he's suffering from depression, and there might have been this, a similar thing in, I believe it was Egypt, right? So now the way we're dying in airplanes is not because of airplane malfunctions. Um, it, it's from pilots downing the planes because they're either suicidal or terrorists or distraught, right? It's, it, it's not from the actual act of flying. So this is kind of getting fascinating when you think about it. Um, and it's a long way of saying, you know, our kids are gonna, in all likelihood, live um, in a world where the idea of starving to death is not the leading cause of death, but overeating is the leading cause of death, right? Something that is, in fact, self-inflicted, we, right? We make these bad choices, right? So it, it, it's kind of interesting as a parent. Our, our parents' parents were just like, how do we keep this kid alive? You know, yeah. <laughs> and it's because they didn't have seatbelts in cars, or they let kids just jump around in the back seat like our my parents. The idea of us putting seatbelts on, or anybody putting a seatbelt on in the car in the seventies was like, why would you put a seatbelt on? That makes no sense. That's not why are there seatbelts in these cars? They just right. literally people people would tuck the seatbelts into the seat so they didn't have to deal with them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I mean, you probably remember this, right? Like, it's like uh, the
0: station wagon with the fold up seats, you know, in the back. Yeah, in the back. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah, like, it's like, okay, how's this gonna work out? Um, so you know there's certainly like this it was weird i was talking to an educational psychologist because we were talking about our daughter who has got this like she's really really high on verbal ability and and certain other traits and then doesn't want to sit in a classroom Mm -hmm. and so they're like hey how do you feel about medicine medication and i'm like How do you feel about medication? Like I'm talking to a 70-year-old school psychologist who's like, well, you know, in the last 30 years, I've seen kids who cannot sit down and shut up, like be able to sit down and shut up and pay attention in class and not be a disturbance to the class. And these kids are going to need to learn that when they get into the workforce and they need to sit at a desk all day because how are they going to function in the world? And my wife and I just sort of like listened to this and we got – we're like, okay – Let us think about that. We got in the car and my wife's like, what did you think of that? I was like, that sounded pretty crazy to me. She's like, that's exactly what I thought. I was like, we're literally thinking that a kid who wants to run around at the age of five, six or seven or eight years old is broken and that they need to be medicated so they can sit in a classroom for six hours without talking. It's crazy. This is crazy madness. And parents are like, Well, I don't have and then you have this other problem where parents are under resourced and have to go to work and mm-hmm. we talked about just how people have to be dual income just to even get by. Forget about, you know, moving up in you know, the, the the ladders of society to a different station in life where they can maybe move from being poor to middle class or middle class to upper middle class or even middle class to affluent. It's very hard. Mobility is hard. Social mobility is very hard right now. It's it's a challenge. And so for a parent who is exhausted at the end of the day, a single parent or even two parents, this might seem like a pretty good option to put their kid on a drug that makes them less – more manageable. So I don't judge those parents, but I do think as a society, the idea of people sitting in an office – and shutting up for 12 hours a day is not the future anyway. Right. Like everybody at works, like, let's get foosball tables. Let's put volleyball outside and let's let people work for two hours and then go do some physical activity, Right. stand up desks, all this stuff. So we, we know this in Silicon Valley, like you need, people need to go exercise. So they're building campuses with walking tracks and tell people like work for 90 minutes, get up and go for a walk for 15, 20 minutes, talk to one of your coworkers and uh, go have a cup of coffee and. Then go back and maybe do yoga or go to the nap room and then go work again for a couple of hours. And they work in a bursty style fashion. And some yeah. schools are just, no, sit in your sit down and shut up. Right is really uh, in the benefit of the teacher and the administration and the structure of the school, not in the uh, interest of the kids. So we we did a hard pass on medicating yeah. uh, kids, and we you know we talked to a lot of other parents who have done it. And I think they've done it under pressure and duress from schools that just don't want to deal with a student who, you know, kicks their legs under the desk. It's It seems crazy to me. If a kid has got energy, that's fantastic. We should get them out there and let them play and run and do what they want to do. Yeah, It's very disturbing to me, like this whole med- – I think the medication of kids is probably – and i'm no expert but i i got to think it's 10 times what's necessary 20 times what's necessary and if there's a group of kids who just have that much energy we should just create you know schools or classrooms for kids who have massive amounts of energy and just to have them be out in the sh- in you know in nature and learning in a literally learning in a park and have you know math be a stop along a hike like just construct it for kids to get some exercise and all these kids are getting overweight so it's and just that's, weird. Yeah. We're, we're living with factory farming of kids, and I'm not going to allow that to happen to my kids. I mean, we're, we're not factory farming our kids. If a school can't accommodate a kid who's got high energy, then I'll just homeschool them. And I'm, I'm very lucky to be in a position to do that. But I'm very worried about like the disadvantage a oh. lot of parents are at. I, and I'm, I, I, I came out okay, but maybe I didn't come out okay. Maybe I had a – maybe I'm not – Maybe I had other options in life. You know, you look back on your own life and you're like, "Wow, I was a product of that factory farming." We were we were the last generation that was hit in class. I remember kids being hit by brothers at Severian. Like, we were literally physically assaulted by teachers. It's kind of <laughs> crazy.
0: That is pretty crazy in in this day and age to think back to that.
1: <laughs> if you got hit by a teacher, your parents were like, "Good, listen to the teacher," you know? Yeah. You just, now you, you'd, you'd sue. You took the teacher yeah. side. Yeah. I yeah. mean, literally, corporal punishment was a thing in the early 80s. I mean, I don't think in the 90s it was, but I think we caught the tail end of it.
0: So, so this I I am with you. I think it's a huge issue and I think it's it goes back to the angel investing really and seeing what's ahead and saying the landscape is changing. It's changing for the negative on the schooling aspect and then it's changing for I think the positive in a lot of ways in the workforce and the the trends in technology, but you have this mismatch of equipping the workforce and equipping the next generation to deal with this new, um, landscape of jobs and, and the professional workspace. And I mean, who's tackling this? I mean, is it because there's no money in it? Is it because no one knows what the heck they're supposed to do? I mean, I know that like Elon Musk started a school at Astra, you know, for his kids, like, what are they doing? You know, are they doing anything innovative? Are they, it's like, who is tackling this? I was
1: going to go, if I had stayed in LA, our our kids would have went there. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm I'm good friends with Elon, and he, he's he basically got two or three of the best teachers in all of Los Angeles, uh-huh. and cool. and um, a couple of my friends uh, have kids there, and I think they do a lot of project-based learning, and they have incredible speakers come in, and you know it, it would it would be what you would expect, which when you have a very small teacher to um, student ratio. I, I think this teacher to student ratio needs to be no more than like 10 to 1. Mm-hmm. And I think as a society, as far as I'm concerned and, you know, listen, I would I would love if we would raise the tax rate on affluent people and I would be in that bucket 5% a year mm-hmm. and put that all towards education and just triple the number of teachers in society. Mm-hmm. Education is just – paramount and we, we we started the discussion talking about the 30 million jobs going away here's a really easy way for us as a society to start mitigating against that literally quadruple the number of teachers and double the number of hours in school so as far as i'm concerned i, I don't think this is a radical crazy value proposition Schools should be available seven days a week it should be available from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m., and your kids can go to it for the standard amount from 8.30 to 3 o'clock, or if you're a parent of limited resources and you have to work a job on a Saturday, you could drop your kids off out on a Saturday school where they do project-based stuff, triple the number, quadruple the number of teachers, and take the hours of a school and take them from whatever it is, 10 months a year, 9 or 10 months a year and make it 12 months a year and make it available 365 days a year. Our society would be an amazing, beautiful society. It would not cost that much for us to have school available for all parents 365 days a year. It is not controversial. Anybody who thinks that that's a large expense just doesn't understand the numbers, the, what we spend on defense, what we spend, mm-hmm. what tax breaks we've given over the years are criminal. Uh, I've benefited from them. I don't need to benefit from them to the level that they're offered. Uh, you know, Anybody who's affluent in this society would say, if, if you went to literally the top million most affluent Americans and said, hey, we're going to charge you 4% more on your taxes, and here is what you'll get three hundred sixty five day education for every American from the age of three years old to the age of twenty five years old and it's gonna cost you four percent more. Every I think out of a million the million most affluent people you would get nine hundred and ninety thousand <laughs> say yes. In other words, ninety nine percent would say yes. And one percent would be like, I'm a I don't I believe in less government and I'm gonna pull a ladder up behind me and you know, I earned mine, <laughs> screw you. But literally the other 99% would be like, wow, what a beautiful thing f- to do for society. In fact, now I'm going to write that up as a blog post. Well,
0: I, yeah, but I mean, I, I agree. I, I would say I agree with that. I think, you know, the, just the sheer investment in education, it's so lopsided with other, so much stuff we spend our money on as as a country. So I would agree with that um, in principle. I think the the question too, though, is h- what step changes are needed in the actual schooling curriculum or the approach Um, to be maybe more in lines with some of that kind of Montessori self-guided to say because what I heard you say the keyword was available schooling being available you know if you made it so that it's a resource that that they could come and they could explore their interests or you know not be so regimented and making them sit at a desk and go through a certain curriculum you know that to me, that's really interesting to say what what could actually happen if you had a bunch of money, if you had the investment money that you know Uber has or really some of these startups to just solve a problem. Why not take some of that money, like you're saying, and and try to figure that out in the same way? You know, tackle that problem from a technology standpoint, from a curriculum standpoint, from you know something that I think rethinking. people are.
1: I mean, if you just look at YouTube, and it's a silly example, but, mm-hmm. but or Treehouse or Lynda.com. Or uh, if you look at um, Khan Academy, a large, and then you go on to Coursera, EdX, and um, you know some of those uh, products. Uh, we're living in a society where, yeah, sure, you can very easily uh, afford uh, to acquire any skill online. You know, it gets me in a lot of trouble when I say all this information is available out there um, because. Then, of course, it leads to, well, if all of the information on how to be a high-tech worker or to learn Photoshop is online, why don't we have people acquiring these skills? And that eventually leads to the answers I've heard from people are they don't have the free time, Mm -hmm. and they don't know it's available, and they don't have the precursor education. Those are the three things I hear most often from people who say I'm wrong about the fact that well, the information on how to acquire skills is freely available online. So what they're right of, they're right that those, the issues they point to are, uh, could be challenges to I- individuals. They're wrong about the fact that the information isn't freely available online. It is. You, mm-hmm. If you want to learn any any skill, your college professors will tell you and even high school professors, go online to get that. There's better information online than what I can provide to you. So go look at it online and then I'll maybe you know, talk to you about it. But literally, if you want to learn any piece of software, the manufacturer of that software and countless other startup companies around that provide it either for free or close to free, mm-hmm. like $25 a month. There's literally people who have told me people don't have the free time and they don't have the money and I say, well, you know, here's each of those arguments. Minimum wage, most cities, 10 bucks ballpark. Uh, so working for Starbucks for two hours or three hours, more than enough to pay for your monthly Khan your monthly Treehouse subscription, or Linda subscription. Plus, a lot of that stuff is already available for free. Then they say, okay, well, people don't have that, and I say. They literally don't have three hours of work they could do, and there's a bunch of on-demand work available in a lot of communities, DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, et cetera. So anyway, people talk down, I think, to the poor Mm -hmm. uh, and to the people who are struggling and pretend that $20 a month is an insurmountable hurdle to get that elite education or the fact that it's free. So Mm -hmm. that seems to me a little disingenuous, Uh, but they say they don't have time. Well, the fact is the average American watches five hours of TV a day. So if the average American has five hours of screen time a day, now you're telling me that this person doesn't have the money, even though it's available for free, or let's call it essentially free in some cases, and they don't have the time, but the average American is watching five hours of television, and the average American is probably spending $60 a month on their mobile phone – And so they say, well, they don't have access to technology. And it's like, well, on your mobile phone is YouTube and Treehouse and all these things. So Mm -hmm. that doesn't actually stand up. And the idea that people don't have access to a computer doesn't stand up in the age of a Chromebook being $199 or $5 a month or $10 a month. So what, what does stand up in that? Motivation access to even knowing that this is a possibility. Those things I think are very valid. There's a large, I talk to people all the time. And they're like, what should I do with my life? And I say, acquire skills. I say, what skills? What skills do you think? I mean, go on LinkedIn and look at what people are hiring for. Go pick 10 companies, look at their job page. And they're like, oh, I never thought of doing that. I'm like, okay, your parents never taught you that the way you could figure out what skills are available is to look at job boards? Okay fine. So, that's that is that is possible. And then motivation. People are, are more motivated to you know, play video games, watch TV, and get the passive or mildly interactive rush as opposed to the slow grind of learning. And so I think as a society, we have to start cherishing the pursuit of skills in education. and education. And we used to have it in America. People used to be very proud of the fact that they were acquiring skills they were very proud of the fact that they were working hard there's something wrong in society where people are just like they everybody wants the kim kardashian private jet but they don't want they don't want to put the work in that it takes to get a private jet i don't have a private jet private jets are absurdly expensive private jet shouldn't be your goal anyway but If you did have aspirations of owning a a home in Calabasas or wherever they live, and if you did have aspirations of driving a Range Rover, there's a pretty straightforward way to do that. Pick a technical skill, acquire it, and then become great at it. And I I don't know, I I get myself in a lot of trouble, but um, I do think that we live in one of the most open Uh, societies when it comes to access to information and how to acquire these skills in the history of humanity it may still be flawed in some ways but I knew when I was growing up you couldn't find this information you had to go to college to get it right And you had to apply to a college and I couldn't get into the good colleges I mean I got into a good one Fordham but I couldn't get into MIT or Harvard or Stanford where they really had the the really great professors and the really elite knowledge now, the those same professors point you to the online course, which is free. Y Combinator is running a free course on being a startup founder. If you want to learn how to be rich, you could take the Y Combinator free course that Sam Altman put together and it's there. You could read my book in the library for free. You could mm-hmm. buy my book for 10 bucks. Knowledge is so cheap and available, yet people don't want to read books and learn skills. And, you know, it's, it's going to take i think a lot of i think we're living in this very weird moment in time where a group of people are capitulating and giving up and another group of people are embracing it and that's leading to this crazy bifurcation where one group of people feels helpless and the other group of people feels empowered and it's it, why do you think that is though
0: why why do you think you have a bifurcation like that i mean where where does that, where does that yeah. motivation come from because i think it bring it back to fatherhood like what what, what role does um the parent. What do the parents have in that? I mean, you you mentioned the parents um, pitching the whole Palo Alto, you know,
1: um, game Here's plan. What I've, heard. I've heard role models is one piece. So if you don't see people like you doing something, people who look like you, gender, race, mm-hmm. etc., if you don't have those examples around you, then you might not consider it a possibility. Therefore, it, it's just not in your consciousness. So. Because I have no musical talent and my parents had no musical talent, the idea of me becoming Mark Knopfler and being one of the 50 greatest guitar players just never even entered my mind. I didn't know where you got a guitar from. I didn't know how to learn to play guitar. You know, it just wasn't part of my upbringing. So, but other people who have musician parents, of course, that's a possibility. And if you have parents who play chess, I suppose you look at them, oh, my my mom's a chess grandmaster. My dad's a chess grandmaster. I'm going to play chess. So the, the, the mentoring and the models I, I hear from people is one of the main concerns, uh, which is why diversity in tech is such an important issue. If you cannot see people like yourself in senior positions doing things, uh, like becoming founders of companies, well, then, you know, you, you may not even think it's an option open for you. So I do think that that is valid. It seems to me logical that mm-hmm. if you don't role models, uh, and if, and consequent and conversely, you know, where I grew up, I saw role models of people who were drug dealers, bookies, um, bartenders, cops, you know, like I just thought that was my future, <laughs> a bookie, drug dealer, bartender cop, like, <laughs> or all the, above. <laughs> it, well, and in some cases there were people who did multiple of those. I mean, I knew cops who bartended and, or bouncers and yeah, uh, right. uh <laughs> and all kinds of other assorted stuff. So, you know, it's. I think that's probably a valid one, but I'm, I'm not an expert on any of this. I also think that we have live in a victim society where Mm -hmm. it's very easy for people to fall into. I am a victim and the world is against me. And I think that a lot of societies that reach the level of, uh, disparity in wealth income and prosperity, it's two things like, uh, we we have it we've made it easier and easier for the rich to get richer. and we made it harder and harder, as I said earlier, for people who are poor or middle class to move up. And minimum wage is one of those things, the ridiculous tax rates that the rich pay, like I mean the idea that the rich get to pay a lower a massively lower capital gains tax while poor people don't have the ability because of being not being an accredited investor to even invest in private companies the system just to me seems rigged so many different ways to make the rich richer that i think it's leading to the revolution that we're experiencing right now which is it doesn't feel equitable it is in fact not equitable that's very clear and we should just the the rich have to pay more taxes education has to be freer and more available and we have to really work on upward mobility the fact that Wages for you know uh, folks are so stagnant is, is a problem. Um, and, and then on top of all this problem, we rigged the system for the rich over the last couple of decades with capital gains, taxes, et cetera, stuff I mentioned, and all these loopholes. We rigged that at the exact same time that low-income jobs are going to disappear at a very high velocity. Mm-hmm. This is a very bad combination. Very yeah. for, it's very scary. Yeah, It's very scary because I see it from the inside. I'm just like, wow, if you're rich and you put your money in the stock market and you pay capital gains, you're just crushing it. Mm -hmm. And those companies are eliminating jobs. Therefore, they're crushing it. So you have all of this wealth and efficiency creation happening for the people who own the stocks of Amazon, Google, et cetera, and who work at those companies and who participate as stakeholders in those companies. And then you have another group of people who don't have access to those companies, which is why I think the angel investing is like this little hack if somebody really wants to do the work it's not guaranteed but it is a hack and a way to break into the system i believe and mm-hmm. getting your name your tables now i don't think it's going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination it's going to be a ton of work for people sorry a sugar ton of work for people <laughs> to break into it but they're in the book i outline these are little kind of like ways you can sneak into the tent And I'm hoping that people read the book, and I hope some number of them figure out a way to sneak into the town like I did. I I snuck my way in, you know. It took me two decades, but I did. And and so I know it's possible. And I'm not saying. And some people are like, Jason's crazy if he thinks everybody can be an angel investor. Somebody was trolling me on Facebook. (laughs) I'd like to see you talk to the coal miner about becoming an angel investor. And I was like, you know what? I would like to talk to the coal miner about being an angel investor. If there's a coal miner who actually. Thinks that they could become a successful angel investor and they want to transition out of that. Yeah, I would love to coach them on. Here's the possible way to do it. And I I wouldn't talk down to the coal miner and say just because you spend your life you know, pulling coal from the ground, you're not going to be able to figure out what the next great startup is. Mm -hmm. There's a possibility that somebody could do that. I know because I'm the – You know, son of a bartender and nurse, and I was able to grind my way there. So maybe the coal – maybe the person who digs coal right now can't do it, but maybe their kid can. Yeah. But everybody's against – like, it's just – we live in such a toxic time right now. I just think everybody is – they don't want to hear that there are possible solutions to society's problems because things have been so bad for so long. So I think there's like this burn-it-down mentality in the world right now. It's also very disturbing like, we've lost all ability to collaborate and use common sense to solve problems. Everything is your team's wrong, my team's right, burn it down. It's just. A do you complete think we've lost? I mean, do you think we've lost empathy
0: for others? I mean, that it's like. I, what do you think? I, I think so, yeah. I mean,. <laughs>
1: It's it feels like, like it. social it, media drains every ounce of empathy from people.
0: Yeah. And it, and it's like, you know, I, I'm obviously one. I have a podcast on fatherhood. So I'm one to harp on, you know, family values and, and the role that fathers play and mothers play um, in raising their kids. But I think all of those trends that you're talking about, to me, I see a commonality of like, what are the role of the parents to teach proper values in this? And what are the downstream effects when that doesn't happen? And not to say that there's not externalities that are affecting that. And that's, you know, the shifts in the job market and all that. But this burn it down mentality you talk about, it is very toxic, but it carries over into your all of life, you know, it's like this perpetual state of like, nothing matters. Or I just, you know, I don't, I don't really care about anyone else. And I just, my team's right, your team's wrong, all of that, that you're talking about. It's like, to me, it comes down to a lot of empathy and, and value structure. And it's to me seems like how do you how do you instill that in the schooling process and the in raising your kids? And it, it's not an easy problem to solve, but I think that is it's it's a huge issue that's only gonna get worse in my opinion, because of the bifurcation of the haves and the have nots, like exactly things you described. It just gets harder and harder to have time and resources to invest in those things. So you naturally have less of them, you know. And it sounds like, though, the haves aren't doing much better a job because the suicide rates are really high. <laughs> so it's all, it's all bad.
1: <laughs> yeah, it feels like it's all bad except, you know— I don't mean to make this super super negative, but here's the thing. It it, it does feel bad because our expectations are high that things will continue to get better. Mm. And it, you know, for a lot of people, it's not getting better. And we live at a time when you can open up your phone and see the worst thing that happened in the world or the funniest, cutest thing that happened in the world. So we are addicted to these little devices. You open them up and it's like, by the way, some people went to a carnival and the carnival ride broke. And here's a video of people's bodies flying off of the carnival ride Mm -hmm. and i saw that the other day and i was just like oh my god you know i was just at a carnival and i just felt so depressed about it and i was like i had this whole conversation with my wife never let our daughters on these carnival rides because they're they're set up and broken down by a bunch of you know teenagers and they're rusted and they're old and they travel hundreds and thousands of miles a year all over the place it's just way too dangerous than a ride at Disneyland which is like bolted into the foundation and yeah. checked and nobody ever dies on a Disneyland ride but people die at country fairs or get mangled all the time. We're never letting our child do this. It's like <laughs> a big like discussion and then I see that video and then I send it to my wife and I'm like, "Oh my god, we're like actually get to see the bodies flying off the the ride." But then you also see, you know, uh, you know, people saving each other's lives and incredible acts of kindness. So you have to really retrain your brain to say, okay, every death and every piece of suffering is going to be documented and served up to us by an algorithm by Facebook that is designed to mess with our emotions because they want to get more people addicted to this rage sadness, and joy cycle. Mm-hmm. And that's why Facebook is growing so much because literally there's a team of really highly intelligent people over there, PhDs and whatnot, who are saying, what's going to have the deepest impact on you right now? And those people need to take a deep look in the mirror and say, why are we effing with people's emotions with an algorithm to this level, right? And fake news was one of the you know, things. It's like showing you fake news is going to make you log into Facebook more. So literally, you know, if the Russians gave a bunch of data and, you know, came Cambrian Analytica used that data or, you know, to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on Facebook, Facebook essentially posted fake ads that they reviewed for the fake news. This is the theory going around Silicon yeah. Valley, and it seems like it's going to be closer to true than false yeah. some hundreds of millions of dollars were cashed by facebook to post fake news that were targeted at african-americans because facebook let you target by ethnicity and they targeted african-americans with ads to get them to not come out for hillary that were fake news and maybe some of that money this is a big maybe came from russians or russian interests or Russian profits from transactions with Russians that maybe are not directly from the Russians but are profits from the Russians, who knows? And maybe there's some stolen data that was used to target these people that maybe the Russians hacked or maybe the data in the ads came from Russian hacked misinformation. So Facebook may have been complicit in cashing checks that they knew promoted fake news to get african americans who came out for obama to not come out for hillary i let that sink in mm-hmm. like people in Silicon valley need to really take a deep look in the mirror if that is in fact what happened and that's why they're getting subpoenas from what i understand and what you can google and maybe that's why zuckerberg is on a tour of america trying to bond with people mm-hmm. because he knows exactly how bad this will look when the whole mueller investigation comes out right because Facebook. People don't know this listening in all likelihood. Facebook reviews every ad on their system. So somebody, some human, whether it's a low level, high level, mid level, you know, I'm sure some of them got surfaced to high level people like Hillary, Pizzagate, people are being molested in the basements of pizzerias that don't actually have basements like, <laughs> you know, like those kind of ads were on Facebook and who right. paid for them and how are they targeted? Right. It's like Facebook needs to think. Should we allow you to target the African-American people in a swing state or the white people without college degrees in this swing state uh, with political ads? Like is that how we really want our democracy to run? It seems like the people at Facebook may have – they might be too smart for their own good, like really smart at manipulating people, really smart at making money Mm -hmm. and really damaging our democracy and the feeling – and the, and the goal of having an equitable society.
0: Which goes back to like the values of like the structure for that. So I think we started this by saying, you know, what, what values do people have and how how they build those? And then what are the outcomes of that? Cause what I think you're describing is, is essentially a lack of values to look, look yourself in the mirror and say, what am I doing here? You know, and the empathy for others. And like, what is the consequences of these actions or decisions and what you know, it's it is speculation in a lot of ways of who actually did that or how that should transpired. But at the end of the day, is it is it a values um, question? And, and I don't know. You know,
1: I I don't have an answer. <laughs> yeah. So there you have it, everybody. It's two dads. Yeah. <laughs> no idea exactly how screwed this up it is, but we are terrified of the future and trying to do our best. <laughs> right. We're trying to best to make it just a little bit better for our kids. I don't, you know, I think maybe check back with me in 10 years and I See might I'm, write a book about parenting. <laughs> and just what I've learned. Um, it is the most important job. I literally considered it my most important job. So,
0: so, so I think, yeah, we'll probably end it on that, but I typically ask someone what their two cents are, you know, the two cent dad podcast. Um, so Jason, you know, someone having their first child, new dad, what, what, what is one piece of advice that you'd give to them?
1: Well, um, There is a four-letter word for how uh, I think uh, kids – that kids value the most, T-I-M-E. And, you know, of course your kids and – you're going to love your kids. That's like a default. You can't not love your kids. I mean there might be some edge case of a psychological disorder where people don't actually love their kids. But you will love your kids. They will feel love. You will feel love from them. But really, love is spelt T-I-M-E in my mind, and I uh, encourage people to take their device, and when they're out with their kids, leave it in the glove compartment, leave it at home, go on a hike with your kids, Um, and it's not the number of hours, it's how present you are In those hours a person on their phone I see it with some friends of mine who are addicted to their phones they're playing with their kids in the backyard for three or four hours their kids feel ignored and they're in a constant battle with their kids to get them off of their phones Uh, and uh, you know kids are gonna follow your lead so I just take my daughter on a hike where there's no phone reception or I just turn the phone off and we hike for two hours then we go have lunch maybe I'll check to make sure there's nothing going on. But I tell my wife, you know, phone's going to be off. We're going to be on this trail and we're going to be in this movie and we're going to be going for this place for sushi or Boba or whatever it is. And, you know, just be present, be present. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I started doing meditation with my daughter, um, which is really, really helped. I think with kids with ADHD or ADD or any kind of focus issue, um, this is one of the great things you can do.
0: have some resources on that with kids. Like, I don't. Okay. <laughs> I'll have to Google that up though. I might put some in the show notes and try to find some because I think that that's a good point because it's an alternative to that medication
1: topic that we talked about. But um. yeah. well, I thanks, just think Jason. hiking and being in nature, like it just is magical for kids. I, ta- I, I take my daughter hiking every week. We go crabbing together, some physical outdoor activity, and also they're going to sleep better. Like there's always this like battle to get kids to sleep. It's like your kid's on an iPad for four hours. They just ate ice cream. And you're trying to get them to bed. Good luck. Like, uh, yep, there <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be a disaster. Take your kid for a three or four mile hike, and then have or go on a pier and crab with them for four hours in the sun. You know, outside in nature, and then you know, you get them home, and they just walk to their bed and they just my daughter when she's out with me for the day she literally says I'm going to bed now dad and walks to bed there's there's no debate over bed it's like I'm exhausted dad can you snuggle with me and read me a book I'm like great I read two pages she falls asleep that's awesome meditation calm.com is a, a company I'm an investor in and they have meditation for kids and, the, and sleep stories for kids they work really well just for a little plug it's not expensive okay. calm calm com, or okay. you can just google I'll link that up. All right. Great talking to you, man.
0: Hey, thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find out more about us and sign up to receive updates at twocentdad.com. If you liked what you heard or just want to say hi, you can shoot me an email at mike at twocentdad.com. Please leave a review on iTunes if you like the show. It helps us to get the word out to the most people possible. And the show is made possible through the support of BC Group International building software teams since 1999.